0: little church humor to get started. Only one time in the many times that I've shared some of these did somebody get really offended, but I won't get into that, but these are actual notes from churches and I was thinking about it tonight and I came upon my little pile. This was a note of church bulletin, Bertha Belch. A missionary from Africa will be speaking tonight at the Calvary Memorial Church in Racine. Come tonight and hear Bertha Belch all the way from Africa. <laughs> mm. Ladies, now this is dated, believe me. Don't forget the rummage sale. It's a chance to get rid of those things not worth keeping around the house. Don't forget your husbands. <laughs> The peacemaking meeting scheduled for today has been canceled due to conflict. <laughs> One more. The sermon this morning, quote, Jesus walks on water, on the water. The sermon tonight will be, quote, searching for Jesus. <laughs> anyway. And I think we really have to, have to find ways of seeing the, the humor in, in our crazy, deluded, ill-will-filled humanity. And so any chance to, to balance the, the factors of the heart. Because uh, we're always, if, there, if we're trying to do anything with our practice, we're trying to create the conditions to experience the sure heart's release, uh, an awakening to that which that in us that is that is not touched by um, by the w- the winds that blow through our life. That 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 for each of us to recognize the deathless in us, the the unborn, the the divine. Even though everything, even in a form, is divine. But to recognize the deepest part of our nature. But the, the way that we are conditioned is that we're continually piling on obscurations that prevent us from, from seeing uh, that, that awakened nature, that natural state of openness that's hiding in plain view. Just that natural awareness that's not constructed that uh, that seems to be beyond birth and death that just uh is we're just aware just awake and the point of practice is return us to uh, return ourselves to that that state of openness that underlies the whole of life and death so everything we do is to create the conditions where we can uh, where we can um, come out of the tangle of, of confusion and that which uh, obscures this, this natural state of openness. And the Buddha was very succinct and very simple is that, is that just by being born we are literally struck again and again by the arrows. I'm, I think of you know, Shakespeare, the arrows of outrageous fortune. We're struck by arrows, the arrows of illness, the arrows of, of bias, the arrows of, of um, aging, the arrows of, of uh, insecurity, the arrows of, of, um, of what's called Sankara Dukkha, the demand every day to get up and do it again and to just deal with so many stresses that's the arrows that are, being, that are impinging on our consciousness every day and when we face the stress of our lives that's called the first noble truth there is stress there is that which is hard to bear but when we face it what we often do in response to it is not necessarily respond to it. we react to it by instead of taking the arrow out the cause of our stress removing the causes of our stress we shoot a second arrow we add to our stress by reacting with ill will with aversion with distraction with grasping and we end up not just with the basic stress of being alive that comes with being born but we we compound our stress, we end up with mental suffering uh, because of that second arrow. So all of our practice is to pacify that second arrow so that we can learn to, to to sit in the middle of our of the life that we find without adding pain to it, without adding suffering to it. To sit in the middle and actually turn the stresses that show up in our life into our path of awakening. How each thing if met with love, with wisdom, with understanding each thing that's met in a wise way, in a loving way becomes, uh, becomes an, a help to us in our, in our path of awakening. And one of the ways that we we pull the arrows out or we don't shoot that second arrow as, as we try to speak very lovingly to ourselves first of all and speak lovingly to others to see the good in others rather than to, to dwell in what's wrong with them. I, I had a wonderful good fortune of being with my... I was with my 93-year-old mother this week. This weekend but i was also with some cousins and siblings and i i can't help it because i'm in some ways i'm an observer because i i don't live there and i just noticed the tenor of conversations and where they went and there was so much second arrows of complaint things that are hard to deal with no doubt there were you know i have relatives that are that are uh, greedy and that are not so generous, and they and but the reaction to it is just keep continuing day in and day out. I kept hearing the same conversation. It was like a broken record, building a case for the prosecution against them. <laughs> and and it felt I felt like I was jumping into this toxic stew. And. There was just very little self-awareness of what, of what was... The, it's hard to discern then what's really the stress here. Is it these, these unwholesome things that the relatives do or is it the, that chronic reaction of shooting that second arrow of, of being critical and hating on them, blaming, demanding. Uh, I I was able to to tactfully a couple times say you know this feels kind of toxic and let's 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 change channels here. <laughs> then I was also, as I said, in the presence of my 93 year old mother, who is not so. Uh, I think when you hit a certain age. You're no longer she's no longer in that state of becoming. So she doesn't have to prove anything. She doesn't have to be somebody. She doesn't she's not caught up in the whole identity view, which is a, which is its own kind of second arrow. Already we're stressful what we're dealing with every day, but then it's all about me how am I doing am I doing enough am I becoming enough am I am I how do I measure up am I am I above am I below am I equal all that is extra that is completely optional in the stream of our consciousness but it's habitual but I could see that my mother was kind of free of it and she has her body is we took walks every day so she's relatively speaking she's incredibly healthy vibrant but she has calcium on her heart and she's got she, her legs, she cramps up at night. She has all kinds of little things. But you know what she says? She does not shoot a, a second arrow. She says, could be worse. Her mantra is, it could be worse. That wouldn't work so much for me. At whatever my... But for her, that, it's the perfect mantra of balancing the stress in a way that she finds that she can sit in the middle of it with, with that noble quality that the Buddha talked about called equanimity, equipoise, balance. So that balance of mind is, uh, is essential because it is, it is the balance of mind. It's coming to that place of, of balance, especially if you're training your heart to be. To be present it is the balance of mind that is the condition to which this is the paradox it's the condition to which the mind or the heart opens to the unconditioned if we're constantly reacting to this and that and fighting this and fighting that and and our mind is is agitated and reactive it's very hard for us to relax into that balance of mind and to begin to then sense the, the flavor of and the fragrance of the unmoving mind, that natural awareness. that, that, that fir, what, what Jocelyn King, this woman yogi, says is the firm ground of emptiness. He says, why do we get so bound up in the quicksand of somethingness rather than the firm ground of emptiness but if we are not able to touch into that quality of equanimity if we're constantly reacting it's very difficult for us to even know that there is this and I use this loosely not in an absolute way that there's this substratum of openness there's this undercurrent in us that is just free that is That Rumi poem is the free swimming fish. You know, it's not bound up in measurement. It's just open. The very natural state of each of our minds is untouched. I've read this in the past from one of the uh, guest teachers that we've had here many times over the years. Tom Moon did a little study on the nature of awareness. I think it's a good time to revisit what he wrote in his study. There are a few pieces that I've, I've told him that I, I question, but for the most part it's got a beautiful flavor to it. He says awareness is, that's what we awaken to, he says awareness is unlike anything else. It knows itself in a direct and unmediated way. In the experience of self-awareness, the knowing subject, meaning the the means of knowing, and the known are all the same thing. The knowing subject, awareness, through the medium of awareness, knows awareness. So in other words, you're aware of being aware. It's amazing, it's self-knowing. Awareness is non-material, it illuminates the contents of the five senses but cannot be detected by any of them. Nor can it be weighed, measured or detected in any way by any scientific equipment. It both follows from the above and is consistent with experience that awareness is non-local. Most people probably assume that awareness is located in the brain. But a little reflection shows that it's the other way around. The brain and all the objects of knowledge are in in awareness. Since every location we can know is known in awareness, it is clear that awareness itself has no location. Awareness is timeless. It observes the arising and passing of every experience, which means that time passes through it but awareness itself is always simple presence it knows the passage of time but it's but is not itself in time it subsists in an eternal now awareness is not affected by its contents awareness of fire isn't hot awareness of light is no brighter than the awareness of darkness the awareness of a star is not larger than the awareness of a molecule. The awareness of fear isn't itself afraid. The awareness of anger isn't angry. And The awareness of suffering does not itself suffer. This is a truth that is of tremendous psychological importance. What it means that for all of us, no matter how much pain or trauma we've experienced, there is some part of us that has never been touched by any of it. That is why experienced meditators often refer to awareness as a secure refuge. Taken together, all the characteristics of awareness show that it must be deathless. Since it is non-material, has no location, is outside of time, and is not affected by its contents, there is no conceivable way anything could create, change, or destroy it. The conclusion is that awareness is simply, simply is always and forever. Now, one thing he fails to mention that without this body we don 't know or aware we don 't know there's awareness, so it, it is um, that, so there 's a condition for it, and that 's the fact that you were born, but it is possible in this very life to awaken to this. Uh, this what seems to be this unshakable deathless uh, substratum to you, to your experience but first things first first we have to to attune to use as part of our practice as our path use all those those habits of mind that obscure our awareness, that tend to, to get us all bound up in, in reactivity. And if it's true that we do not want to suffer, then it's essential that we remove, to whatever extent we can, remove the cause of suffering. So what is the cause of suffering? Somebody want to say what the cause of suffering is? I'm not talking about the cause of of the garden variety of stress what's the cause of mental suffering attachment Attachment, grasping so grasping comes in the form of wanting in general wanting things to be different than the way they are but it comes in the form of grasping at at sensory experience it never brings contentment brings a lot of pleasure and grasping comes in the form of, of, uh, of ill will, of anger, of frustration, of jealousy, of fear, of all the forms of aversion. And it uh, comes from grasp, grasping or attachment to uh, the I- idea of what the Buddha called avidya, the idea of an independent self. The idea that behind this whole changing mind-body process that there's, a, there's someone in there that's solid that's pulling the levers, that's, that's uh, the agent for, for everything, that everything's happening to. But in studying mind and body we don't find that, that identity. All we find are changing conditions. Things being known, rising and fading. And so due to that that delusion of consciousness, the personalizing of everything, referring it back to the sense of of myself, me, but not really examining what that me is, uh, creates this, this chronic sense of grasping at an idea. And because it's an idea, it can't be secured. It can't be, there's no solidity in it. And so it keeps us bound in a kind of wheel of, of endlessly measuring, endlessly trying to secure something that in fact doesn't have any objective existence. This thing called identity. It is Identity as a, a beautiful and necessary part of our, of our individual natures. But in and of itself, it, there's no there there. And yet, as a meditator, we can actually notice identity. I talk about this a lot. We can notice the sense of inflation. We can notice the sense of deflation. We can notice insecurity. We can notice our measuring mind comparing. I'm not good enough or I'm, I'm better than. We can, we can notice all of these momentary manifestations, momentary arising of the sense of identity. Does this seem interesting to you? the study of identity? Does it seem confusing? Or doesn't it make sense that this sense of identity is a, is, everybody has this going on in their mind? Every individual has this going on in their mind. But is any one of those ideas of yourself, does it really capture you? You know, I always talk about, about how how a different version of myself you know, I'm generally the same I'm generally same wherever I go but subtle different flavors of of identity show up with different people in different roles different circumstances when I'm when I feel like I'm the no one looks like me there's a certain kind of identity. I get much more identified with with how I look if more if everybody looks like me, I don't. That identity doesn't really show up so much. When I'm with super smart people, and my identity is whatever, whatever identity of being not smarter or smarter or whatever it is, that kind of thing, which I might not even think about ever with in other circumstances. So we have all these different identities that show up, and. An identity, an idea of myself is not myself. It's just a, it's one of these appearances. It's one of the, you could say it's the, um, one of the ingredients of of human individualities. We have identities. But identities are not yourself. They're just a changing story. But if you get bound up in these identities, you're relating from them, it completely interrupts. Clinging to identity interrupts our equanimity. So grasping, condemning, and delusion, either delusion in the sense of not see, understanding things clearly, not seeing clearly, but also delusion in the sense of, of being caught in identity views. That, those things interrupt our that natural balance of mind the beauty of insight meditation the meditation in general is that we can we can literally transform these three poisons of greed and hatred and delusion we can transform them into the they become the the manure of the Dharma the milk of the Dharma how has that happen I start noticing the grasping mind I start to recognize that the awareness of grasping is not grasping. Relating to it, seeing how the grasping mind of wanting what I don't have. I, I am what's called, classically called, and the, the three general poisons reflect three general character types. There's the greed type, the grasping, the anger type, and the deluded type. I'm the greed type. So my mind will get kind of deluded the, a form of delusion. I think delusion underlies all of it. But my particular delusion is that I will get on some something that I want. And my mind will start to work it. And implicit in it is it's going to bring me some greater happiness. Some greater relief. Some greater... And it it just never delivers. Because the golden dreams just keep moving. You satisfy one and it and the mind immediately feels dissatisfied and then it generates another and it just goes on and on and on. The aversive type, which is what I saw in some of my relatives, they were just mind inclines towards seeing what's wrong and it just goes on and on. If they could work, If they can make that case clear enough for what's wrong, then somehow it's going to all be rectified and fixed and all it does is just it's like flexing a muscle it gets stronger and stronger and then the, the face takes on this kind of ugliness when it's it, when it's complaining all the time when it's criticizing when it's blaming but if i can become self-aware enough to recognize what my mind is doing that same mental habit becomes the cause of my awakening because the mind that knows anger is not angry. It's balanced. Any moment of mindfulness is a moment of balance. And if you really stay with that balance of mind, you just keep noticing, you make it more continuous. The, not only the, do you start noticing things more clearly, the, it illuminates, it's actually... Kind of bad news at first i always say that insight at the beginning is bad news because you just see how how gross your your internal mind stream is it's just most of the time it's filling up with greed hatred or delusion why do you think the movies could all be every single movie in the movie theater you could name every movie greed hatred and delusion and you'd have the movie exactly right (laughs) that's what makes entertainment (laughs) It's amazing. But to notice that and to notice it in a continuous way uh, is, that's illuminating. But what becomes even more illuminating is that a strong attention, present attention, becomes illuminating in itself that you start being more even more pulled toward not what you're noticing, but the fact that you're noticing. And then aware you start to sense a kind of apperception that awareness is is actually pretty balanced already. And especially when you realize that whatever you're noticing is just always changing, your mind just stops grabbing so much. Stop believing it. Stop stop identifying so much with the flow of experience. And then mind just keeps opening and opening and opening to its natural state of openness and balance. And and then lo and behold you see that that there's a difference between you just start seeing things more simply but that's what mindfulness does. It just sees the world simply. It sees that there's just six, you know, six experiences changing all the time. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. And when you see things that sim- simply, then you see the difference between what's actually happening in any moment and your mind's embellishment of it. The greatest gift that, of this tormenting teacher that I had, this Burmese teacher named uh, Sayada Upandita. May he rest in peace. The, the most, the greatest gift is that he made me report to him In I met with him every day on retreat and I would have to keep a little book. And after every sitting, I would write down what actually happened. And what I'd have to report is what I noticed, whether I noted it, whether I made it, acknowledge what it was, and what happened to that experience when I noticed it. So I was just tracking the bare data of cognition, the bare bare experience. What's going on here? Like right now, what's going on? Not my and I noticed the more I did that, the more precise it became. And then it became much more clear that how often my mind didn't just notice the bare data, but it had some kind of elaboration on it. Like it was started to tell a story about it, and what it meant, and what it meant about me, what it meant about the world, and what, and then my mind got so keen at being able to see the difference between my embellishments and what's actually happening at any moment. And the more I was able to see that difference, and it's, I'm not saying anything that you can't see, but the more I saw that difference, the more my mind started choosing in a way to just be with the reality, be with the simplicity, that my embellishments were always getting me into into some kind of a, a mess. Ascribing meaning was, would, would actually add to my suffering. And yet, in seeing things just the way they are, doesn't mean they're pleasant. There was a lot of what we call Dukkha there was a lot of being, feeling just totally assaulted by, by sense experience. Just coming moment to moment. My mind just so so present that I couldn't, I couldn't hide. Everything is just coming, 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 coming. And it, just so painful. But there was a, a point where I maybe at times I wished things were other than the way they were, but... I saw this is what's happening, whether I like it or not. And the more I was just able to see, oh, this is what's happening right now, this is what's happening. My mind didn't embellish as much. It didn't get into that struggle. And with the with that cessation of so much struggle, there is a just a natural balance. Fell into that that just like the the little duck in the ocean, just cuddling in the swells, just ease into the openness, you know, right where it touches me. And, um, that's really the promise of our practices to cultivate this quality of equanimity. And so even dealing with family members, you see, oh, this is how they are. You see that they're the the heirs of their karma, the their, their stream of their consciousness, and and they're not they don't respond to my will or my wish. <laughs> They're not made in my image. So the traditional recitation for the cultivation of equanimity is all beings, every, this whole world is the is the inheritor of the, of the both collective and individual karma. And whether or not it, the world is happy or not, or people are happy or not, it's beyond my will and my wish. Of course, that by itself sounds kind of cool, but that's, it's cool because we need to cool out because we get so reactive. We get so brokenhearted when you see how much systemic suffering we have in this world. And the only way to, to be able to, to meet it with balance is to understand this is the way it is. Although I wish things were otherwise, things are as they are. Or as my mother would say, could be worse. (laughs) I think I'll leave you with that since we went over time. Let's see if there's a good equanimity passage I can read to you. I'll finish off with Jack Corn, or with not Jack Cornfield, with Ajahn Chah and his passage called, Take the One Seat. Just go into the room and put one chair in the center. Take the seat in the center of the room. Open the doors and the windows. See who comes to visit. You will witness all kinds of scenes and actors, all kinds of temptations and stories imaginable. Your only job is to stay in your seat. You will see it all arise and pass, and out of this wisdom and understanding will come. As I see it, the mind is like a single point, the center of the universe, and mental states are like visitors who come to stay at this point for short or long periods of time. Get to know these visitors well. Become familiar with the vivid pictures they paint, the alluring stories they tell to entice you to follow them, but do not give up your seat. It is the only chair around. If you continue to occupy it unceasingly, greeting each guest as it comes, firmly establishing yourself in awareness, transforming your mind into the one who knows, the one who is awake, the visitors will eventually stop coming back. If you give them real attention, how many times can these visitors return? Speak with them here, and you will know every one of them will. Then your mind will at last be at peace. So may we all find peace. Peace. And may we all also keep welcoming what comes, not expect them to go away. They will come back. That's my little change from Majan Anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks for your practice. Thanks for your generosity. And um, thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit